Welcome to Almost Here, Round the Corner Future Technology Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies poised to transform our lives for better or worse are the focus of this podcast. Almost Here means these technologies are now here and starting to be used or just around the corner from Bitcoin to artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more. Hi, this is Richard Jacobs with Future Tech Podcast. I have Mark Jackson. Uh, he's on the faculty at Singularity University, and we're going to be talking about uh, some interesting projects that he's working on today. Mark, how you doing? Hi, thanks. It's great to be here. Yeah. So, um, you know, instead of me giving a uh, somewhat lame overview of your projects, but, you know, let the listeners know what's the top few that you're working on right now, and then we'll dive deep into uh, one or two of them. Sure. The main project that I'm working on right now is the Dawn of Private Space Science Symposium. So this is a symposium that we'll be hosting at Columbia University on June 3rd and 4th to focus on private space science. So there's been a lot of talk about the, about the commercialization of space or about space tourism, but there hasn't been so much attention given to the scientific opportunities in space. And so what the event will focus on is how would a science project get funded privately? And then how would you put okay. it on a private rocket in order to put it up into space? Mm, interesting. What kinds of uh, science projects are you seeing that you think it would be very exciting to find the results of because they're in space? So one example is earth science. So this is especially topical right now, given the political climate and everything that's happened to, uh, for example, the EPA budget the past few months. Uh, there's now this whole class of satellites called CubeSat, which can very affordably be put up into orbit. And you can take pictures of the Earth and what's happening to our, uh, to our planet, and which can then transmit these images back down to Earth for analysis. And so mm -hmm. this, is a, this is a perfect example of privately funded science that we can take advantage of now. Yeah, tell me a little bit more about Cube satellites, um, their dimensions, their weight, uh, their cost to put into space. Sure. So a CubeSat is, is 10 centimeters cubed, so it's about the size of your fist, and it, it can weigh no more than I think it's like 1.6 kilograms or something like that. So it has to be kind of lightweight. And right. because... So you can even stack them together because of its standard size and weight. There's a very affordable way to send this into orbit because it's all very standardized. And so instead of costing millions of dollars to put this into orbit, it might only cost say a hundred thousand dollars. So this is wow. this is within the price range of of like universities or startups to build and launch into space. And so this has really disrupted the whole the whole space industry because. Now you can build these affordable space projects and iterate very quickly. So you can make improvements each time. So, for example, there's this company, Planet Labs, which I believe just, just renamed themselves Planet, which has been putting dozens of these CubeSats into space for all sorts of purposes. So this is the kind of innovative, awesome stuff that we'd like to focus on because I think a lot of scientists would like to do this type of a project, but they don't know how to get their projects funded, and the mm. space industry is, isn't as aware of the scientific opportunities. They're very focused on commercial applications, but they're not aware that there's this whole new market for scientists to do experiments in space. 
what are some experiments that uh, are either in process or being proposed or ones that you think would be particularly impactful? You know, what, what are they about? Sure. Well, let me, let me give you an example other than just CubeSats. So there's this lunar rover that some, okay. some scientists that I know have been studying. They want to put this rover on the moon to look for water or other resources. Hmm. And it's a, it's a really great idea, but just due to whatever political funding climate, it, it may not be funded. And so this is an example of something that uh, is, could potentially make great discoveries but it may never come to pass because of the political but, but it may never actually exactly but it may never actually come to pass so this is an example of the type of thing that uh that we'd like to focus on uh, another example would be asteroid mining so there's there's mm. a joke that the the first trillionaire will be made because of space and one example is asteroid mining asteroids contain all sorts of minerals especially platinum for example and it's expensive to identify which asteroids would be best and go out and actually mine them and bring these resources back. But if you could do that, it would be immensely worthwhile. And so there's actually two major asteroid mining companies already set up. There's planetary resources and there's deep space industries. And so this is the type of thing that we would like to draw attention to. Yeah, I spoke to uh, Chad Lewicki from Planetary Resources about asteroid mining. It was fascinating. Mm -hmm. And you're right, that would be a private endeavor instead of a government one. Um, what, right. what about and, the laws governing putting an object into orbit or into space? Are there any laws that you know of that would, you know, uh, slow down citizen science and private science from doing these things? Yes, this is a, a, another good example. This is one reason that we've invited people from the space policy world, from NASA or from the legal community to, to comment on such things, because it's a bit of a wild west right now. Mm. There are no, there are no, clearly defined regulations. And so this is an emerging field as well. If, uh, if you go out and mine an asteroid, who, who owns this asteroid? Is it just finders keepers? Can a, can a nation go own an asteroid? Uh, all these type of things need to be worked out. Yeah, I guess it actually probably would resemble the laws of treasure finding, you know, the law of the sea mm -hmm. in a strange way. Yeah, without knowing anything about the law, but okay. But for right now, um, there's there's no actual law that says, you know, you can't put a satellite into orbit or into space. I, I don't know the details. There must be some sort of regulations because people have been putting objects into space for quite some time. But I think it's hmm. because the, bar the barrier to space is much lowered. Before, it was only countries that could do this. And now it's private individuals and startups. So I think there's going to have to gotcha. be some reworking of all the laws. That's right. So out of the projects that could be done privately, you know, there's still a high end where it would take millions, and then there's a real, real low end where, you know, maybe a small group of individuals could, could launch something for, I don't know, 100,000, 20,000, something like that. What are some That's examples right. of projects beyond what you gave? Um, you know, what are some of the higher end projects that are still that would, would be done privately? And what are some of like the uh, the real DIY stuff, if there is any, that uh, would be done by just a few individuals or maybe even one individual? Sure. Well, let me give you examples of the high-end stuff. So one example is the, the Breakthrough Initiative. Uh, this is a project led by Yuri Milner, and he has, uh, he has an incredible board of advisors. There's Mark Zuckerberg and Stephen Hawking and Pete Warden and uh, 
all these big names associated with science and the space community. And what he's trying to do is really bring humanity out to the stars. And he's trying to, to build a whole fleet of spacecraft to transmit messages to inhabitable planets nearby. Huh. And so this, this, this would cost billions, like 10 billion or, or so. And so it's, uh, it won't be one person doing it, but he's leading the effort to, to bring together a number of people to make this happen. So that would be on the high end. And then on the low end, as okay. I mentioned, there are examples. Uh, yeah. On the low end, there are examples that I mentioned, such as CubeSat Project. Uh, in fact, Elizabeth Tennick is the president of Teachers in Space, and she'll be talking about high school teachers that have been assembling projects to put into space. So wow. it's, uh, it, yeah, it's even high school students and the teachers that are able to do this now. What are, what are some of the projects that have already um, put objects into space, and what have been some of the results? I mean, you know, it sounds great, put stuff into space, but I don't know if um, regular people would understand, all right, well, what are the benefits besides getting images of Earth or, you know, maybe being able to find extraterrestrial life? Any other potential benefits or actual benefits you've seen from experiments? Well, let me, let me take a step back and mention something which I think a lot, of, a lot of people don't understand in that so much of our technology nowadays depends crucially on physics discoveries which were made not just a few years ago, but decades ago, and in some cases, like hundreds of years ago. Hmm. And I think I, I, the best example that I can give you is GPS. So everyone uses GPS and they love it and it's so convenient. But what a lot of people don't realize is that GPS is based off Einstein's theory of relativity. If Einstein okay. had not developed relativity, GPS would not work. And, and there's Can you give two a, reasons a for quick this. sketch of, yeah, uh, sure. okay, go ahead, why? Yeah, so to give you a quick sketch of why this is, so when the satellites that are responsible for this triangulation in GPS, when they're orbiting above the Earth, they're traveling at very high velocity. And so there's actually this time dilation, which relativity predicts. And it's only billionths of a second. So the clock on the satellite is off by our clocks on the surface of the Earth by just a few billionths of a second. Then since you're dealing with, with how far light travels in those billionths of a second, that's hundreds of meters. And it gets worse. It accumulates this error. And so you would simply guess the wrong answer if we didn't understand. Uh, sorry you would simply get the wrong answer if we didn't understand Einstein's theory of relativity. And the second aspect of this is that there's a slight gravitational difference. So the gravity on the surface of the Earth is a little bit different from where the, the satellites are. And so this too accounts for a few billionths of a second difference. And so we wouldn't notice it on a day-to-day -day scale, but because of the high speed of light, again, it would show up in the calculation. And I think people don't realize that when Einstein developed this about 100 years ago, he never would have foreseen that this would enter into a, something called a GPS system. But right. it's very important. And so when you talk about how does fundamental science affect technology today and how does it affect our real world, not everything that we do right now for scientific research has a foreseeable application but that doesn't mean it's not important. It will become important later on. 
Okay, I understand. I see what you mean. I see. And just going back to the GPS example, if if we didn't adjust for relativistic effect, GPS would be wildly inaccurate. Is that what, is that what you're saying? Th that's right. We would simply be getting the wrong answer, and we would have no idea why. Everything would seem to work. Hmm. We would just be getting the wrong answer. And so this is a perfect example of something that was developed 100 years ago for very theoretical reasons. So when Einstein developed mm -hmm. this, it was because there were theoretical problems with Newton's version of gravity. And so at the time, only a few physicists and mathematicians could appreciate the beauty of this. But now it's become this crucial part of our technology. Wow. So that's the reason to, to push into space is because so far, the benefits have been so dramatic and so unexpected that you expect them to continue because space is so alien and space is space. Yes, uh, you know, people love space and it's exciting to go out there and, and go to these places that we've, we've heard about because of science fiction, but there's a lot of practical benefits too. So one, one obvious example I can think of is space health. So you, you probably heard that a lot of weird things happen to the human body when you're in space. In zero gravity or in space? Uh, both. Both in zero gravity okay. and in space. Uh, so the, the first thing you'll notice is that blood rushes to your head. Because gravity isn't there to hold it down, the lower parts of your body, so the blood rushes to your head, so you have this kind of fat face, and you appear a bit ruddy, and your legs feel thinner, and this hmm. goes away after a few days. Your body can compensate, but, but you will immediately notice this. And then you'll notice that your muscles become weaker because you don't have to use them as much. You're not walking around on the space station. And so just after a few days, you will lose a lot of your muscle mass. And then wow, just they've also days. discovered that, huh. yeah, just after a few days. In fact, uh, there was an astronaut. She was in space for two weeks. And when she came back, she was so weak that she could not even stand up at the press conference. Wow. She was an astronaut. So she must have been in phenomenal shape to get up there. But after just two weeks, your muscles atrophy so much that this is what happens. So muscle, so uh, huh. astronauts have to do about two hours of exercise a day just just to stay fit in the space station. Wow. So this is one this is one issue, and then there's more subtle problems. They've also noticed that the vision of astronauts gets worse, and this is because the eyeball changes shape. Your eyeball isn't a spherical anymore because of the zero gravity environment. And so there's all sorts of weird things that we're discovering, and this should not just help the health of astronauts in space, but it should help us understand the human body better for medical advances here on Earth. Have people uh, tried to grow plants on the space station and seen the effects on plants or other animals? Or you know, what other what yes. else do you know about yeah. zero gravity environments? Uh, yes, they've done all of these things. Uh, I don't know the details of what they've learned, but this is. This is a very active field of research. Hmm. Huh. Very interesting. So what role are you playing in all of this, and what role do you want to play in it over the next few years? So the role that I would like to play in all of this is for the public to understand how important this scientific research is, and I'd like to bring scientists and funders together because I think there's a big, there's a big gap separating these two. Scientists are doing amazing work, which benefits people's everyday lives, but I think the public isn't always aware of this, and I think potential funders don't have direct access to a lot of scientists. 
And so this, is, uh, this has been most of my work for the past few years to narrow this gap. Okay, I got you. And why is there such a, uh, how come scientists and people that could or would fund projects, how come they don't know about each other? Is it because scientists are too busy being scientists? Or is it because funders just have no way of knowing what's going on scientifically? Like, what's the reason? Yes, both of those are true. Uh, there's a shortcoming on both sides. Most scientists don't want to deal with the fundraising side. That's that's mm. usually not what their skill set is, and they would rather just stay in the laboratory doing the research. And most of them right. don't have the social networks to, to reach out and know who might be willing to fund this. And then, of course, funders probably don't deal with scientists every day, and so they, they would have trouble identifying the highest quality science. And then there's also the problem that most scientists, they work at universities or research institutes, and they often have rules about whether scientists can fundraise independently because they have their own network of fundraising contacts. And so it's a, it's a difficult dance to do for everyone. And I've, I've been trying to improve the situation in a few ways. First of all, about two years ago, I created a crowdfunding platform called Fiat Physica. So this is a crowdfunding platform which focuses on physics, astronomy, and space exploration, which allows scientists to set up projects and raise money from the public. And we've, okay. we've had great success. In fact, uh, just last month, there was a group that raised $15,000, and Stephen Hawking posted about this project on his Facebook page. Wow. What was the project, out of curiosity? The pro yeah, the project was a summer school in Palestine. So a, a bunch of prominent physicists had been conducting this summer school to help Palestinian students learn physics. And some of the people involved in this were at the University of Cambridge. And Stephen Hawking posted about the project on their behalf, saying this was, this was a great endeavor and encouraged people to donate. And it actually crashed our site for a few minutes. Uh. Yeah, that the, the Traffic because of this post was so overwhelming. That's great. So, all right, so one, one solution is this crowdfunding site. And tell me the name. It's Get Physica. What is it? Fiat. The name of the crowdfunding platform is Fiat Physica, which is Latin for Make Physics Happen. Can you spell it? F-I-A-T-P-H-Y. Yeah. Okay. yeah. F-I-A-T-P-H-Y. S-I-C-A. Okay, Fiat Physica. Gotcha. That's right. Right. Like Fiat Lux, let there be light. Mm, gotcha. Okay. Um, so you have the crowdfunding site. What What other um, – I mean, that's enough, obviously, but you know, it sounds like you have more up your sleeve. What else are you doing to uh, <laughs> to bring scientists and, uh, and funders together? <laughs> sure. So, uh, so yeah, that's that's one aspect that I've been pursuing. The other aspect is we'd like to work directly with foundations and corporations to allow them to sponsor projects. And so to facilitate this, I started the Science Partnership Fund, which is a nonprofit organization which works directly with the foundations and corporations and does matchmaking between great scientific projects and major sponsors like this. And so it's on behalf of the Science Partnership Fund that we're hosting this Dawn of Private Space Science Symposium. And we've, we've 
been doing the fundraising for a number of other great projects, for example, the Space Apps Challenge. So this is a workshop organized by NASA in several hundred cities in the world, and we've been doing the fundraising for several of the cities, most notably New York. And we've had a, a great success. Uh, we've had sponsorships from SpaceX, Microsoft, Amazon, Wolfram. So major companies like this have been right. supporting the, the science projects through the Science Partnership Fund. That's fantastic. Okay. What do you think? I mean, it sounds like you're doing different things and you're not sure which one's going to have the biggest effect, but you want them all to have synergistic effects. What do you That's think right. it's going to uh, take? What do you think it's going to take for some major breakthroughs in, because of private space science projects? The reason, I'm, the reason I'm taking these different approaches is because there are several different players in the science funding world. So the crowdfunding platform, it's most successful for educational or outreach projects, which don't have to raise huge amounts of funding. So crowdfunding works best when, it's, when there's a more modest financial goal and when it's very directly related to people and communities. The nonprofit side with the Science Partnership Fund, this is more geared towards larger research projects in which a major donor would be interested in supporting it. And my, my goal is for these to work in synergy, as you put it. Uh, so for example, there might be a foundation which offers to match donations by the public for a crowdfunding platform. I'm sorry, for a crowdfunding campaign. Okay, that makes sense. Connecting people all up and down the chain. That's right. The scientific fundraising industry hasn't really changed in hundreds of years. It's, uh, right. it's, it's really been limited to one's private network of contacts and hasn't really taken advantage of the internet, which, which we see all these examples from Uber to Airbnb where we can develop a completely efficient marketplace. If it's Uber, you know, the customer needs a taxi and there are taxi drivers and Uber connects them. And if it's Airbnb, right. you, need a place, you need a place to stay, someone has a spare room, Airbnb connects them. And so my goal is to make this a completely efficient scientific funding marketplace. If a scientist needs funding and someone wants to support science, this connects them. Gotcha, very interesting. What about your work with, um, with Singularity University? What do, what do you do there and uh, how does that interface with all of this? So my first exposure to Singularity was five years ago. I was living in Paris and my girlfriend at the time broke up with me in order to attend the Singularity Summer Program. <laughs> so, so, uh, so that was when I first heard about Singularity. And I joined their faculty last fall as their principal faculty. And I developed presentations for them on quantum computing and space exploration technology and data science. Okay. And a few and weeks ago, I, I actually transitioned into adjunct faculty because I wanted to focus more on technical research of some of these things. But Singularity asked me to remain as adjunct faculty and to develop some videos explaining some of these new technologies. So I've been developing short videos on like the applications of quantum computing or space medicine or data science. Yeah, well, that's good. I was going to ask you, right, uh, so you've actively not only promoting uh, private space science, but you're making explainer videos and 
helping educate people about it. So where can people find some of the videos you've made so they can learn more beyond our conversation? Yeah, sure. So these videos are available on the Singularity Hub. Okay, so it's just the website? What, what website yeah. is it, or is it on YouTube? Or? Yeah, these videos are available on the Singularity Hub, which is a blog which contains all sorts of information about different aspects of exponential technology. Yeah, what's what's the URL for the blog, if you haven't said it already? I mean, just so it's obvious. Uh, boy, I don't know if it's off the top of my head. Uh, yeah, if you just Google Singularity Hub, then okay. it, it should take you there, yeah. Yeah, and you mentioned um, the exponential technologies. I know from um, being on Peter Diamandis' list that there's now a series of conferences, exponential manufacturing, exponential finance, et cetera. Um, and again, you're you're creating a very similar thing with the private space science. Um, anything you want to say about uh, all that activity, the various conferences? I know that we want to talk primarily about your own and give a few details mm -hmm. on it, but any other ones that are sure. important? The great thing about Singularity is that it makes connections between technologies and industries which aren't obviously connected. So the whole idea of the Singularity came about when Ray Kurzweil realized that the one example of, of exponential technology that people are very familiar with, so this is Moore's Law, which governs processing power of, of computers, it applies to a number of different industries. The idea is, is that a technology can start very slow, and it, it appears to have almost no progress. But over time, this constant doubling makes it increase faster and faster until it just overtakes the existing technology. So a classic example is, is digital photography. Most people are surprised to learn that digital photographs actually began at Kodak. Everyone associates Kodak with traditional film photography, but it was actually a researcher at Kodak that first realized that one could take digital photographs. And this was in the right. 70s, and he brought it to his supervisors, and they, they said, no, forget it. Uh, this is too expensive. There aren't many pixels. People like film photography better. What's the point? And at the time, there was, there was no big incentive to do this. It was far more expensive, and the quality was far lower than film but it kept improving. And so it was just a few decades later that digital photography drove Kodak out of business. And so there's this deceptive period in the beginning where you think it doesn't matter much and then all of a sudden it's too late and it completely disrupts mm. the existing technology. And so you mentioned like exponential medicine and exponential, uh, what was the other one you mentioned? Manufacturing and finance. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. So the examples that you mentioned, exponential medicine and exponential finance, there's a lot of similarities between these different fields in that technologies can start slow, but then they quickly overtake the existing technology. Hmm. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. Um, and as Peter Diamandis talks about, um, like in the instance you gave of, you know, photography, digital photography, it's, been dematerialized. Now it's just an app in your phone, or it's part of your phone. There's almost no cameras anymore, or it's you know vastly reduced and demonetized. It's, it's really no extra cost to do it. It just comes free. So I guess those are some of the hallmarks yeah. or elements of an exponential technology as well. That's right. It was only a few years ago that I remember 
buying a physical camera and buying physical film and being very careful about how many pictures I took of something because I didn't want to waste the film. And then you, mm. then I had to take it to the store to get it developed. And of course, this all costs a lot of money. And then you have to sort through the photographs to see which ones you want to keep. And then you make a physical scrapbook of all this. And mm. I'm sure I'll have to explain this one day to my children because they will <laughs> not believe me. Uh, you know, yeah. now you just, the camera's built into your phone. You take as many pictures as you want. You immediately email it to your buddy across the world. Uh, it all happens so easily and so quickly without any physical process needing to happen. And it's all for free, basically. And so, yeah, yeah. you see how quickly things change because of this. Definitely. All right. Well, um, you know, let's bring uh, listeners back to your initiative. So what are some of the various ways that they could get involved, either as a funder or as a, you know, a scientist uh, finding projects to work on or letting the public know about their projects, getting funding, you know, what are the various channels through which people can uh, connect with your efforts? Sure. So there are three main ways that they can, they can get in touch with me. Uh, the first is by visiting the crowdfunding site, Fiat Physica. And the URL is just fiatphysica.com. And check out all the great projects that we have on there. And the second way is if, if they're a foundation or a corporation and they would like to make a more significant gift to a research project, they can visit the sciencepartnershipsfund.org, which details several of those projects. And then mm -hmm. the third way is our Donna Private Space Science Symposium. Even though our venue only allows a very small number of individuals to attend, we will be live streaming it, and everyone is welcome to view this. And we have an incredible lineup of sponsors and speakers. Blue Origin will be there, Virgin Galactic, XPRIZE, uh, scientists from the Harvard Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics. So we have an incredible lineup of participants, and you're all welcome to join on the live stream. So just visit privatespacescience2017.com, and you can submit your name to be notified when the live stream becomes available. Where and when is that going to happen, that event? That will happen June 3rd and 4th at Columbia University in New York City. Okay, very good. And it sounds like the seats are full, but live stream is available, so that's a great way to participate. That's, that's right, yeah. it's uh, Yeah, that's right. Okay, well, very good. Well, good for you for filling that event up. And uh, now on to the live stream, so... All right, Mark, um, anything uh, else? You know, we've gone in a lot of different directions. I try to keep the conversation, you know, focused around um, what you see and what you've been bringing to the table. Anything else that we missed that you want to talk about? The technology that I'm most excited about, personally, is quantum computing. Yeah, let's, let's go real brief into that. Um, I've done a number of interviews to find out what it is, quantum computing, and a little bit of how it works. But, you know, let's focus on what do you think realistic applications will be and which ones are just fantasy, you know, over the next uh, five to ten years. What do you think will happen and which applications are you most excited about? Sure. So quantum computing has been talked about since the 80s. It was actually the physicist Richard Feynman who first pointed out that that we could use the basic laws of quantum physics for computation. And of course, we, we always use physics for computation. The computer in front of you right now uses physics, of course. But 
quantum computers take advantage of it in a really interesting way. Instead of ones and zeros, instead of the bits that we're familiar with, it uses qubits or quantum bits. And these are neither a one nor a zero. It's actually somewhere in between. This weird quantum superposition, it's called. And the advantage of this is that it can do two calculations at once. It can do the case where it's a one, and it can do the case where it's a zero, both simultaneously. And this may not seem so dramatic, because you say, okay, it's, it's twice as fast, but what's the big deal? But that's for every single qubit. So if you have two qubits, it's four times as fast. And if you have three qubits, it's eight times as fast. By the time you get to 30 qubits, it can do a billion calculations at once. And so right now, we're, we're just in the beginning stages, but we actually are building the machines. It's not just talk anymore. So IBM has already put online a five qubit computer, which you can program. And laboratories and startups are starting to build 10 qubit machines. And they're not completely stable, but at least they are building them. And once we get to 50 qubits, that will be more powerful than any digital computer that we could ever build. And so just wow. imagine the processing power. Yeah, just imagine the processing power of a 100,000 qubit quantum computer. It's more powerful than anything we could ever imagine. And that's not beyond the realm of possibility. So the application well, what of are, quantum computer. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. What are some specific yeah. applications? Yeah. yeah. So because a quantum computer works so differently, you can't just download Angry Birds and it's ready <laughs> to go. It just, it just runs faster. Uh, uh, quantum computers uh, use a completely different language. You have, to, you have to manipulate the qubits at a fundamental level. So the programs are written completely differently, and they only deal with probability. So because of this weird intermediate state between ones and zeros, it only deals with probabilities. And so most programs will probably be some sort of hybrid program. It will have a quantum computing aspect, and it will have a digital computing aspect. And mm -hmm. quantum computers are very fast, but they're not completely reliable to give the right answer. Whereas digital computers are not always so fast, but they are completely reliable. So if you think about what applications could take advantage of this, so one application is machine learning. So in machine learning, you're training the computer to learn from experience. So you, you give it some examples, and you teach it how it should behave, and then you let it go on, on new data sets. And so when, it's right. learning how, so when it's learning how to classify data, there's a lot of different ways to classify things. And a quantum computer could explore all these different possibilities simultaneously and figure out which classification scheme is best. So that's, that's taking advantage of all this speed increase from the qubit. And so machine learning is one, one application that quantum computers should definitely do, mu do much better. So a lot of the interest has been from financial firms because they realize that financial prediction is really just machine right. learning. And so, uh, wow. so yeah, just, just yesterday, Rigetti Computing, they closed a new funding round of over $80 million. So investors are, are realizing this could have a huge influence. Yeah, sorry, uh, investors are realizing this is very worthwhile. Okay. Yeah, it sounds like uh, quantum computing, it sounds like golf. Quantum computing would be the driver that gets you onto the green and then the, uh, you know, uh, 
traditional computing is what would get you to the exact place you need to get the to put- the hole. The, the putter. Yeah. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good metaphor that I've never heard before, but that is actually really good. <laughs> well, that's what came to mind. It seems like quantum computing could look at a vastly complex system and tell you maybe the, the few spots, you know, narrow down um, the answer you're looking for to a few areas that seem likely or high probability of containing your answer. And then you go at it with um, traditional computing to find out exactly if, if you know, the guesses were right, the educated guesses. Yeah, that's uh, that's actually a really good metaphor that I, I have not heard before, but I like that a lot. Okay. Well, very good. Any any other um, applications of quantum computing that you think would will um, will be amazing? You know, it's machine learning, which is still general. You know, I'm not sure exactly what mm-hmm. it would be applied to. I know finance, but any other applications you thought of that crossed your mind that that you think would be uh, vastly improved by quantum computing? Yeah, one application that people are very excited about is molecular modeling for chemical processes, and this is because when we when we develop new formulas, uh, there's a there's a lot of computation required to figure out exactly how to make these new materials. And two percent of the world's energy resources goes for fertilizer. So if we can develop more efficient ways to manufacture fertilizer, this would have a huge impact on how we use energy. And quantum computing is ideal for this, the way that it can model molecules for how they interact. So this is one application that people are very excited about. And I guess also um, understanding protein structures, you know, protein folding, that kind of thing. That's that's right. Any any type of process that uh, develops, yeah, yeah, that's right. Okay. Well, very good. Well, like I said, you know, that's what I love talking to the singularity faculty and adjunct faculty is because you guys all have such a huge breadth of knowledge that uh, there's many things we can talk about, which is great. And we've, we've covered a lot of interesting stuff. Um, I guess with that being said, you know, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. And, uh, you know, we encourage listeners to check out your uh, Fiat Physica and uh, mm-hmm. some of the other resources you provided. Maybe we could just recap them for a second. Sure. So Fiat Physica is the crowdfunding platform which focuses on physics, astronomy, and space projects. And the Science Partnership Fund is the nonprofit, which focuses more on research projects, connecting them with foundations and corporations. And our Dawn of Private Space Science Symposium is focused on all the opportunities for scientific exploration of space in the private sector, getting them privately funded and then putting them on private rockets. Okay, well, Mark, thank you so much for all your time and your insight. It's uh, it's been really great, and I appreciate it. Great. Thank you so much, Richard. You have been listening to Almost Here, Around the Corner Future Technology Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Subscribe to this podcast, post a review, to discover more future technologies that are poised to transform our lives for better or worse, such as Bitcoin, artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more. 